We're in John chapter 6. Uh, I'll be preaching from the ESV. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, we have some in the back at the connection table. Uh, grab one of those. It's our gift to you. Take one um, and uh, follow along. And I'm going to read today. I'm going to actually read 35 through 59, but we're actually going to look at 49 through 59 today uh, and pick up where we left off last week in our study of the gospel according to John here in chapter 6. So John chapter 6, verse 35, going to start there and read. John chapter 6, would you hear the word of God? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let us pray.
Father, you were so good to us that you would send your son to die in our stead. Spirit, you, you have applied salvation to us. You have sealed us. And we thank you for that glorious truth. Jesus, we praise you for your work. And as we look here at what you teach us in this section of John chapter 6, would you help us to see what we cannot see on our own? Would you give us spiritual eyes that we would look past the physical and be open to what you have for us? And in short, we ask what we know not you would teach us, what we are not you would make us, and what we have not you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. So over the past few weeks, we've been making our way through this portion of John chapter 6, where Jesus has introduced himself as the bread of life. And while we've been doing this, we have taken the time to focus in on some of the theological concepts that are presented here in this section of Scripture. But it's very important to remember that verses 26 through 58 are one sermon. It's one discourse that Jesus is preaching, teaching this group. Verse 25 is where it starts off, if you look up there with me. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then in verse 26, we see that Jesus answers them. And this is where this sermon begins. And if you recall, at least a portion of Jesus's audience witness the miracle of the feeding the thousands with the uh, two fish and the five loaves. And this group has now followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee, seeking to get more of God's tasty provisions. And we, we broke this sermon down kind of in four sections so far. First, we looked at what Jesus says is the work that God requires. Uh, that was found in verses 22 through 29. Uh, then in verses 30 through 36, Jesus makes the claim where he says, I am the bread of life. I mean, there's no mistaking Jesus's claim there. And then we looked at the eternal plan of salvation. So how salvation was planned, and it is preserved by God. It was something that was not an accident. It was not a, 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 another uh, um, way of somehow God uh, making way for man. Rather, it was planned by God to send Jesus and redeem his people. And then last week, we saw Jesus speak about the way this plan is actually worked out. So if we ever wonder, well, how does someone actually come to Christ? How does someone actually come to knowledge of God? And we learned that it is the work of God 
in and through the lives of the believer, the regenerate, the one that is being converted and transformed to seeing Jesus Christ as the bread of life himself. And today we look at the conclusion of this sermon. This is how Jesus brings all of this to a close. And as we look at verses 49 through 59, we see Jesus conclude his sermon with an invitation to eternal nourishment. An invitation to eternal nourishment. And I've got three headings I want us to really examine this text under. The first heading is this. We first see in essential contrast. An essential contrast. Second, we'll see a lack of understanding. There's a lack of understanding in this crowd. And then third and finally, we'll see Jesus provide an eternal promise. An eternal promise. So let's look here at verses 49 through 51. Let me read this for us again as we see an essential contrast that must be dealt with here. He says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So here Jesus presents a very simple yet essential contrast between physical nourishment and spiritual nourishment. And Jesus starts here with the physical. He does this by acknowledging their forefathers' experience in their, that they had during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. If you recall, Jesus fed, or God fed them by providing manna, and he provided for them in a very physical way. And if you recall, the crowd brought this up to Jesus in verses 30 and 31. Let me read that for us just to jar our memory there. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform, Jesus? And, and then they say, well, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus actually uses their argument here. This is very circular. He's, he's pulling, he's reaching back, and he's grabbing some things that they have said. And he's saying, oh, yeah, that's what you think, but let me present you with the truth here. And he quickly reminds them here that although the forefathers' physical needs were indeed met, they still physically died. They ate those things, that was great, but guess what? They died. They ate the food that perishes, as he uses in verse 27. 
And brothers and sisters, this brings to mind an important reality that we must take into consideration. And that reality is that people can have everything they want and everything they need physically, but still be spiritually malnourished. You can have everything in the world that you want, that you need, but be spiritually done, dry, empty. And that's the reality of many today. Many have full bellies but empty hearts. Their mindset is on what they can get now. Many people have the mentality that accumulating as much physical pleasure as possible is the primary meaning of life. But Jesus says physical nourishment satisfies only for a moment. It doesn't last. Now listen, I want you to make sure you hear me here. There is much good to be found in the material world. There's much good in the world that we, we should enjoy. God created a material world for uh, us to enjoy. It's for his good pleasure and for his creation to enjoy the good things that he has given. A good meal is one of life's greatest gifts. And then that God would even create like so many different foods and then so many ways to prepare different things, the thousands of spices that, that go into the foods. And then he would give us taste buds to actually enjoy and taste buds that respond to different foods in different ways. I mean, the creativity in God's design for humanity is just far beyond our imagination. And God tangibly blesses creation in many other ways with many other physical blessings. Brothers and sisters, we should enjoy good food. We should enjoy good drink. We should enjoy good fellowship, community, family, good entertainment. We should enjoy nature the way that God intended. And furthermore, Christians are commanded to take dominion over the material world, to cultivate and steward the physical blessings given to us by God, to the glory of God and to the good of those around us. This is what we are called to do as God's people. But we enjoy physical things while remembering that those things are temporal and not meant to satisfy forever. They're meant to point us to the one who is forever, namely God himself, the giver of those good things. Jesus reminds us here and reminds this crowd that pursued him because of his ability to provide physical, that physical nourishment does not last. And physical nourishment alone ultimately leads to death. And there's hundreds of new things being developed every single day to help us live longer. But guess what? 
we still all die. I mean, that is the reality that we live with. But there is something else. There's the physical, but there's also the spiritual. There's something that is offered to us that is beyond the physical that gets to the heart of our being. He says there is spiritual nourishment available that provides eternal sustenance. And he calls this living bread. Now notice what Jesus says about this living bread here. I mean, he makes some very important statements in these two verses that we need to take uh, hold of. One, he says that it comes down from heaven. He says this twice here. He says it once in verse 50 and then once in verse 51. Now, this is a reference to the incarnation, that God, the, the Son of God, the eternal pre-existing Son of God, came to earth. The incarnation was not Christ's beginning. He, he came because he was and it tells us that Jesus was not created. Instead, we see that the Son of God is communicating that he, he came to do something specific here. He says, I came from heaven. I mean, the message is clear here. Jesus always has been. Second, he says, I am the living bread. I mean, he, he plainly lays this out and says, the bread that you need is me. It's Jesus Christ himself here. I mean, Jesus already made the statement, I am the bread of life. He says that in verses 35 and verses 48. Here, Jesus is saying the same thing in a slightly different way. I mean, this is a truth that he is um, repeating because it is so profound and so important for this crowd and for all Christians to understand. He also says that those that eat it don't die, or he says they live forever. There's another way that he puts it. Now, eat here is figurative language for believe. Uh, we'll get that, we'll get into that more here in a moment. But this tells us that in contrast to the physical nourishment that was provided in the wilderness which led to death, the spiritual bread leads to life. There's two different categories here. There's one that is temporal, one that is eternal. And then fourth, he says, he makes a claim about the bread, and he says, the bread is my flesh. The bread is my flesh. Now, this is a reference to his death on the cross, the, the death that will take place. We know that because he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Something that will happen. It's something that he is going to do. He has come to give himself as a sacrifice. John says 
earlier, right, in the prologue that the Word became flesh. And so here in the same type of language, he's saying the Word that became flesh will give his flesh for the world. This is what he is getting at here. This is the heart of this section of Scripture. 1 Peter 3.18 is helpful here. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The word world here is really significant as well because it shows us that although Jesus' death is not efficient for everyone in the same way, meaning not everyone receives the same benefits, the full benefits of Christ's death because what? They lack the ability to believe. They will not believe. They rebel against God. They will not accept the sacrifice for themselves. So although it's not effective in the same way, it is sufficient for the whole world. Here's what that means. Jesus' death is so perfect. It is so just. It is so righteous. It is so valuable, so priceless that it is enough for anyone who believes, sufficient for them all. There's no barrier to this. There's no reservation to this. Those who benefit are those who believe. He says, if anyone eats of this bread or believes in him, The same thing that was said back in verse 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the Christians in the room, listen closely. This is the message we preach. All who believe in Jesus have eternal life. We offer this message. It's called the free offer of the gospel. I have tried for the last two, three, four weeks to just reiterate that truth. We are not told or called to try to figure out who will respond. We are told to proclaim the glories of Christ, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ without reservation to anyone and everyone we have the opportunity to proclaim it to. We preach the good news that those who repent and believe in faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's what we take to the world. That's how we preach. And listen, while we've talked about unconditional election and effectual calling the past few weeks, and both of these are biblical and true. They are variables of the salvific equation left to God and God alone. Here's what we do. We preach the good news. 
We tell others. We provide and proclaim the free offer of Jesus Christ that whoever and everyone that believes will be saved. We're to do this without hesitation, without reservation, every single chance we get. In this section alone, the words whoever and anyone are used five times. He says, if anyone eats, and then he goes on later and says about four times, whoever feeds. We'll see that in the uh, last section of our text. But listen, I mean, just to reiterate again, the message is clear. All are invited to partake of the eternal nourishment found in Jesus Christ. We proclaim that truth. But as we all know from our own experiences and as we have learned in our study of this text, there is a difference between those who respond and there are some that do not. Some respond, some will not. Some will continue in their rebellion. Some are stuck in the physical mindset. They cannot respond to spiritual truths. And we read here in verse 52, and we see this example of the crowd. We see really a lack of understanding. Look at verse 52 with me. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, I mentioned last week that the Jews' hostility against Jesus is growing here. Uh, it started and it started with the grumbling, and it is growing now to a dispute. And the word dispute that is the original language is not just a friendly argument or maybe just a, 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 con- a minor controversy that you may have with someone. This word actually comes from a word that would be uh, very angry. Uh, it would mean to fight amongst oneself. It would mean someone that is in high levels of hostility towards the thing to which they disagree with. So this crowd has grown furious. They're outraged at Jesus. And the reason why is clear. It's because he has said that they have to eat his flesh in order to live. And they have no idea what this means. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty strange thing to say. Like when we think of this physically, that someone would say, you, you've got to eat my flesh. And, and later he'll say, and drink my blood in order to live. They don't understand this. They're only seeing physically here. And we've seen this before in this gospel account, haven't we? We saw this in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus goes to Jesus. He says, well, hey, how, how can I be born again? Or how do I come to the kingdom? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And then Nicodemus responds and says, so, like, how does an old man go back into his mother's womb? Like, how does that happen? How can someone be born again? Then also uh, in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman by the well, 
She could not understand how Jesus could give her living water. Remember, she tells Jesus, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to give me any water? After Jesus tells her that she should be asking him for water. She says, I don't see a bucket, and you're not going to use mine. You can't see past the physical. Here, this crowd models the same thing. They can't see past the physical. They misunderstand Jesus' true meaning because they lack spiritual understanding. And it was very, very normal for Jesus to take physical things and to then make figurative, uh, use them for figurative language. Uh, He would use them as metaphors to help people to, to really see what he was trying to teach them here. But they just cannot comprehend this. The idea that their Savior would come and die and would offer up his own flesh in and of itself was an outlandish idea for these Jews to comprehend. They couldn't comprehend something like this. They didn't want a Savior that would die as a sacrifice. They wanted a Savior to make their world a better place. They wanted a Savior to come and to release them from the the tyranny under the rule to which they were attached. So here when Jesus doubles down on the reality that it is only by faith in his upcoming substitutionary death that man can be saved from their sins and reconciled to God, that they are outraged. His listeners do not like this. But that doesn't stop Jesus. It doesn't stop Jesus from continuing his invitation to eternal nourishment. And he closes off this discourse with a final promise of eternal reward for all who feast on him. Once again, this is something that he has already said, but he is closing this out with this eternal promise for all that would respond to Christ. Look first at verse 53 as we look at this eternal promise. So they don't understand. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, here again, we read this term, truly, truly. This, once again, it signifies a new truth that is important something they may not have understood or have ever heard before. And he's saying, barely, barely, truly, truly, pay attention here. This is important. You must grab hold of this. And church, just looking here at the fact that Jesus didn't stop preaching the truth when faced with opposition shows two things. One, his compassion for this crowd, and second, his boldness. It shows his compassion for people. I mean, he could have just left. He could have just said, you guys are foolish. You don't understand. You'll never understand. I'm out of here. 
But he doesn't do that. He shows compassion for this crowd. He also shows his boldness by he's not swaying away from his argument here. He's not running away from the truth. I mean, he's just saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. And listen, church, this should encourage us to aim for the same balance. This is the balance that we should have in the Christian life. Too often we fall into one of two ditches. The first ditch is we are overly compassionate and we don't ever get to the truth. We let our emotions control us and we never get to the truth of the gospel. We have a hard time telling people, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or we're in the other ditch, the I'm overly bold and I speak the truth no matter what without compassion. And that's a ditch that we need to be careful of falling in as well. In speaking hard truths, we must pray for wisdom and ask God to work in our hearts, helping us to grow in Christ's likeness, giving us the ability to speak the truth in love. Anything else is un. Christ-like, and it should always be avoided. We must be a people that aim for balance, speaking truth boldly, but with compassion for people. And Jesus isn't holding anything back. I mean, again, in verse 53, he says, if you do not eat my flesh, You have no real spiritual life. But then he also adds here, you also have to drink my blood. Here, brothers and sisters, the full picture of Christ's death is on display. The the picture of Christ dying is now like a, a supernova singly placed in a pitch black sky for everyone to see. You you cannot miss this here. Jesus says, it is my death. I will die. J.C. Ryle states here, referring to this text, he says, my own impression is that both flesh and blood are mentioned here by our Lord to make it certain to the Jews that he spoke of his death and of the offering of his whole body in sacrifice on the cross. The body of the sin offering was just as essential a part of the sacrifice as the blood, end quote. Listen, remember, the timing of this chapter is important. It's right before the Passover feast. And most of these Jews, if not all, would be participating in the Passover feast. And in the Passover feast, they remember that God had delivered their people from slavery in Egypt. 
And how does God finally and ultimately do that? He tells his people to sacrifice a lamb, to then cook in, or first to then take the blood of that lamb and put it on their, the heading of their door and the uh, posts of their door. And then they were to eat that lamb. They were to do this quickly, ready to go. Like on the move, you, you got to be ready to go. And then what would happen is that at nighttime, that God would pass over those with the blood of the lamb. Those that did not have the blood lost their firstborn son. There was consequence for not being a part of those that are covered by the blood of the lamb. And if you remember back in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, what does he call Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus here is saying, I am the eternal Lamb, the sacrifice, the eternal sacrificial Lamb, the one that will be sacrificed so the sins of my people will be passed over. They will be spared. He says this in a conditional way. He says, unless you eat and drink of me, you will die. In verse 54, he states the same truth in a positive form. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but it is important to take Note here of something significant that affects church history and helps us to see what this passage really means. The Roman Catholic Church believes that this passage actually teaches that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine become or transform into the body and blood of Jesus during their communion celebration, the Eucharist. They use this word transubstantiation. And what this means is just that it changes form. The substance transforms into something else. And they say that by sharing in the Eucharist meal, the Roman Catholic Church is teaching that it's fulfilling here this message in John 6. 53, right, where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the son or eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, let me just plainly state that Christians reject that view. We reject that. We do not believe that there's anything that happens to the elements used in communion. There's many reasons for that, I'm going to give you a couple of passages that just directly refute the idea that Christ's body is transformed and somehow re-sacrificed or somehow uh, re-presented as a means of salvation. Hebrews 7, 27, the writer of Hebrews says, He has, speaking of Jesus, he has no need like those 
high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the, those of the people. And here's why. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's Hebrews 7, 27. Hebrews 9, 12 says this. He, speaking of Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He does it once. He secures it for eternity. 1 Peter 3.18, I'll read this again. We read it earlier, but it's applicable and helpful here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I mean, there are many other passages we could look at that debunk the Roman Catholic interpretation here. And furthermore, when Jesus institutes the supper, he tells his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. He says it's a reminder of what I'm about to do for you. I have transformed the Passover meal into something else. When Paul tells the church in Corinth, what does he say? He says we do this in remembrance of Christ. As Christians, we look to the Lord's Supper as a reminder of Jesus' death in our place, his body given, his blood shed on our behalf. He died the death we deserve, and we get the life we don't deserve. It's the good news of the gospel. We commune with Jesus when we partake of the Lord's Supper through the Spirit's work in us. This passage does not teach anything about the elements of the Supper somehow changing to Christ's actual body. It doesn't tell us that people need to take, partake of the Lord's Supper in order to be saved. Uh, we can think of the man on the thief on the cross. Jesus tells him that day, you will be with me in paradise. They did not celebrate the Lord's Supper then. Brothers and sisters, we believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We add nothing to that. There's nothing that can be added. In verses 53 and 54, Jesus is plainly stating the, tr the simple truth that you must have faith. You must eat. You must believe in this sacrifice. This is how we eat of him. One of the great church fathers, Augustine, summarizes this simple truth like this. He says, believe and you have eaten. 
all about belief, faith. Friends, the question you must ask yourself is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you truly believe that his death, his burial, his resurrection happened? And that it is enough to reconcile you to your creator. That's what we must answer. Jesus continues to elaborate on this beautiful truth. He says in 55 through 57, look there with me. He says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Here Jesus is saying that the food and blood I offer is something that lasts forever. It is real. It is true. It never fades, it never perishes, it never goes out of style, it has no shelf life, it is eternal. This is the Jesus that we preach. He then connects his eternal relationship with the Father's ability to then give life to all who feed on him. John 5, 26, we read, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And here what we see in this section of Scripture is Jesus expanding that truth to include those that believe in him. Now listen, I want you to think of it like this. Contrary to the physical food that Satan offered Adam and Eve in the garden that actually broke their relationship, their fellowship with God. Jesus now offers food that brings us in to fellowship with God. There's a replacement here that Jesus is saying, the food I offer is eternal. It brings you in to fellowship with God the Father because I have fellowship with God the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus offers us the true food that leads to eternal life and fellowship with God. That is good news. You want to be reconciled to your creator. You do not want God to treat you as you deserve to be treated. You want God's mercy. And Jesus affords us that opportunity by offering himself as the sacrifice, the one that reconciles us, that pays The penalty pays the price, absorbs the wrath we deserve, and says, now you get the benefits. Satan only offers separation. 
He continues to only offer separation. He hates you. He hates humanity. He throws us these ideas that if I choose this thing, it's going to satisfy. When in the end, it destroys. Satan only offers separation. He can never offer satisfying fellowship. And brothers and sisters, it's important to remember this truth when we are tempted with sin. Listen, only Jesus offers fellowship with God. Only Jesus Christ can provide eternal fellowship. He's the only one that has life in him. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you a question. Are you taking the food from Satan or are you taking the food from Christ? What food are you feasting on? What food is at your daily table? And then just even further on that same thought, what do your daily rhythms say about what food you're eating? We may say with our mouth that I'm eating the food of Jesus. What do your daily rhythms show? How are you living. Jesus reminds this crowd and us again the contrast between physical and spiritual bread. Once again, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. And then he closes with a final invitation to eternal nourishment. He says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then verse 59, John just gives us the place of uh, this teaching. When he says that he said these things in the synagogue, he taught at Capernaum. So we're going to close now with this section of scripture. And I just want to leave you with a few closing applications to, to add in to some of the, the questions that were asked earlier and really punctuate some of these Things, some practical next steps that I pray will be helpful, especially in light of the Advent season. One, just that Jesus came to the world the first time, came into the world, but he's coming back again. So we look at the first coming, but we wait for the next. We're people in waiting. We're people waiting for Christ to return. And brothers and sisters, the question we must answer is, are we living in light of that reality? Are we preaching this good news? Are we telling others about the good news of the gospel? There is a way for man to be freed from a life of slavery to sin, and be reconciled to their creator. And for Christians, I you to think about this. We must not dilute our salvation to a one-time profession of faith. 
It's a part of it. We must confess, believe with our hearts. We confess with our mouths. We must profess Jesus Christ as Lord. Confess our sins. He's faithful to forgive us our sins. But this passage teaches the importance of daily abiding in Christ. Daily scripture reading. Daily prayer. Daily worship, communion with the Father through the Spirit, through Christ. And I think Jesus connects physical food and spiritual food here on purpose is to remind us that although our bodies need physical, we, we have to eat, and it's something that we can tangibly process. We say, yep, need to eat. Some of you now, I need to eat. But Jesus says there's something that is far greater than your physical need, and that is your spiritual need. So if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, what does your daily abiding, feasting on Jesus look like? Listen, skip a meal if you have to. Be in the word. It is far more important to have spiritual nourishment than physical nourishment. It is the only thing that will sustain us. Eat a meal on the go. Spend some time in your word. Pray. Read. Fellowship with God. If you're not a Christian, the invitation is clear. Come to the table. Eat. Feast on Jesus. Believe in Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness, for your goodness, for your mercy. Jesus, we thank you that you stood in our place. You absorbed the wrath that we deserve. That there was nothing we could do to change our standing with God. But you, Jesus, you, you came and you died in our place. Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those that may not know you. That they would repent, believe the good news of the gospel. That they would be saved today. Lord, work in us, help us to be ambassadors for this truth, especially during this holiday season when the world is watching. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.